Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every week to promote and to defend public education. That's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It is available to all children, regardless of where they come from, throughout the world, whatever their religious background of their parents may be, whatever their parents' bank balance may be, there is a public school for those children. Or we certainly have to fight to make sure that there is. And those uh, schools should be owned and controlled by the uh, state, not by religious or any other groups, and certainly not for-profit organisations like charter schools. We also believe that um, they are the only ones, the public schools that should be publicly funded because they're the only ones that can be publicly accountable. And if our governments really wanted us to have a proper democratic liberal democracy, then they would provide a first-rate public education for every child. Now, this is not happening, which means that we are degenerating into a non-democratic developing rather than developed nation. And um, the dogs are here to speak the truth about it. We have a website at www.adogs.info and here is press release 745. Funding debates are proving that the dog's position is unassailable. The last two months leading up to the impending release of the Gonski 2.0 report reveal the angst and frustration of those who have promoted a needs policy as a way of avoiding sectarian problems in Australian education. The evidence of this is found in the list of news and views from the Save Our Schools website, which is listed below. And you will find those on our website and you can read them. The proponents of this policy, that's the needs policy, are still living in hope that somehow, somewhere, politicians will realise, even forgetting our children, for hard, pragmatic reasons, social and educational inequality is bad public policy. Religious sectarianism has long been overtaken by social stratification in this country, as the dogs predicted in 1964. The figures are telling their own story and Trevor Cobald, Chris Bonner and the late Bernie Shepherd have done a magnificent job taking up the financial calculations where Ray Nielsen from the dogs left off when he died. Fighting for any money for the education of a growing population of disadvantaged children is a worthy enterprise under any circumstances. The recent 14 April story in The Guardian proves this. And we give you the Guardian reference and shortly Robert will tell you just exactly what is in the, in the Guardian newspaper. It's a lovely story and uh, he can deal with it in his State Schools of Great Schools segment. There has never been any substitute for teachers, parents, doctors and trained welfare officers of goodwill and skill. They are the people who make all the difference to our children and the next generation. And their value to our children is without price. But they need proper funding, a supportive central administration, security of tenure and a career structure. That's what they got 
from our forefathers in the 19th century and that is what they have been losing systematically in the last 50 years. Just talk to the teachers about what happened to their security of tenure and their career structure and a supportive bureaucracy or administration. They've all been undermined thoroughly by the private school interests. But the promoters of private schools and division in our fragile communities need to be confronted and called out for what they're doing to our social fabric and the opportunities of the majority of our children because the majority of our children are still in our public schools. In their latest academic rationale, Jane Caro and Lindsay Connors, they're good public school advocates but they're advocates of the needs policy, provide the following reasons for the current glaring inequalities in Australia's educational provision. They say that the complexity around school funding began with the entry of the Commonwealth as a significant partner with states in schools after the election in 1972 of the Whitlam government. Well, actually, it started before that with the Menzies government, and uh, they're saying the problem, of course, is that the um, the churches, the church schools, got their cotton-picking fingers into the, the Commonwealth Treasury long before the state schools did. And when the Catholic community could no longer staff its own schools with religious teachers, the divisive politics of state aid for non-government schools became enmeshed with the problem of the vertical fiscal imbalance in Australia's federal system. By that they mean that the states are responsible under the Constitution, under Section 51 for education. The Commonwealth is not. But here is the Commonwealth giving money to private schools with a little bit through to the states. And the states, of course, lost the uh, taxation balance when they gave up income tax to the government during the Second World War, the federal government. So there is an imbalance between the amount of taxation that you can get from the Commonwealth government and the amount that the states can provide for their services and particularly for schools. With Donsky 2.0, however, the Turnbull government has just upped the ante of this imbalance. Section 35A of the Australian Education Act of 2017, headed Commonwealth Share, now reads as follows. The Commonwealth's share for a school is, for a government school, 20%, and for a non-government school, 80%. And here in Victoria, of course, the, um, the Victorian government gives the non-government schools 25%, so they're getting 105%. In Australia's federal system, the Commonwealth raises the lion's share of revenue and it has a larger budget and greater flexibility in doling it out than the states, where expenditure is largely locked into the provision of essential services. The Act now gives legal force to the cosy embrace between the powerful class and religious interests that dominate the private school sector and the level of government that raises the bulk of revenue. Listeners... Archbishop Mannix understood that that was the name of the game as early as 1911. This has been a long campaign. Given that the Commonwealth also bears little or no responsibility for the practical consequences of its funding decisions, this has been a recipe for political opportunism and for the uncoordinated funding and planning of schools between both levels of government across the public and private sectors. As well, the confusion caused by the irrational way in which the Commonwealth and states have distributed the funding has been to the detriment of informed public debate. Well, that's putting it very nicely in very careful, expurgated prose. Because, you know, these ladies are good academics. Lindsay Connors and Jane Caro bemoan the fact that the federal government gives priority to private schools while public schools go begging. And Robert will be telling you more about what they have to say uh, later in this program. But they end up with a cry. Why? It's as if we are busily building a class system, they say. It's not good enough 
according to the dogs, to blame the current crisis for public education on our federal system of government taxation and expect teachers and parents of goodwill to struggle with disadvantaged communities because that's what's happening. The needs policy has been a failure again and again and again. Why? Because it's really a greeds policy. The problem is that the religious men worked out how our political and financial system worked, gained the balance of control and seized their favoured position 50 years ago, and the horse bolted and Lindsay Connors, for one, went along with the flawed needs policy. It always was, it still is, and it always will be a greeds policy. Private schools and their religious administrators need to be confronted There's a surprising number of people on the social media are confronting the private schools and saying that since the taxpayers are subsidising them to and beyond their resource standard, they should be taken over. And the operators of these schools should be expected to make their schools genuinely independent or else hand them over to the the taxpayers who are paying for them. Our public system, which is open to all and should be offensive to none, is the backbone of our fragile, enlightened democracy and it's a treasure that should be protected at all costs. And dogs keep asking, when will the needs policy advocates bite the bullet, confront the sectarians, lose your fear of being called sectarian yourself and take up the state aid for state schools only position? So that is our press release. For the week and uh, we'll have a bit of a break and afterwards Robert will tell you about um, what Caro and Lindsay Connors are saying in detail and uh, later in the program he'll tell us about Wilmot, a little school that is doing wonders for its community and disadvantaged children in Shepparton. Thank you. 
said to me, Child, what's happened to your appetite? I've been cooking all morning and you haven't touched a single bite. program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. That was The Ballad of Billy Joe by Nancy Wilson. It's good to have your company here again and Gene is right. Today we're getting into the meat and potatoes of what on earth is going on with um, expenditure when it comes to private schools in Australia and also our great state school of the week as Gina's told us will be Wilmot, Wilmot Road up there in Shepparton, a very interesting school which has got some attraction from the media for a very good reason. But before we get to Wilmot, let's talk about what Jane Carroll and Lindsay Connors are saying. Um, Jane Carroll in particular has been an ally or a friend of the dogs for some time, but often these commentators, both Carroll and Lindsay Connors, cannot bite the bullet in the ways that we can about funding for private schools because they are people who go on various talk shows and uh, media personalities in the mainstream media. They have to talk in terms of um, the next best thing, which is, of course, trying to balance the funding between private and public sectors in Australia. Whereas here on 3CR, we can just call it the way it is. We can call it the way it should be. We can call it the way it needs to be, which is there's only one system of education in Australia that requires needs and should be funded by us, the taxpayers, which, of course, is the only system that is open to all, accessible to all, free um, and not sectarian. Um, you don't have to be a particular region to turn up to a state school. And, of course, state schools are, are not exempt from the laws of the country. You can't just kick kids out because because you feel like it. Anyway, Lindsay Connors and Jane Carroll have been shifting their p- position, I would say, over the last five years as things just get worse and worse, both at an international level and a local level. Both things are beginning worse in terms of social segregation and division between Australian students and, of course, Australia's education system is slipping behind the rest of the world at an increasingly rapid rate. Now, Caro and Connors supported the original Gonski back in 2011. They believed that that was worth supporting, even though, well, even though we at the dogs thought it's a needs-based funding model, and needs-based funding models almost never work. The reasons they said the threefold that they supported the original Gonski, the first was that it distributed fundings based on a real evidence-based need. The second, that it was treated all Australian kids as if they actually lived in the same country. And the third was that for the first time in decades, because it was a school funding scheme, it was relatively uncomplicated and easy to explain and in large part free from special deals and bargains that had been made in the past. Now the reason that Caro and Connors find it impossible to support the Turnbull government's Gonski 2.0 is because it actually, apart from just nicking the branding of Gonski, it fails on all three counts. 
including a return to the deliberately much more complex and confusing formula that we've had, or we currently have at the moment, and we've had all the way through since John Howard. Now they say deliberately because it's only spreading confusion that the government can claim that its plane bears much resemblance to the universally popular original vision of Gonski back in 2012, but in fact has nothing to do with it. They say the complexity around school funding began with the entry of the Commonwealth as a significant part of the states in the school at the end of the election of 1972, back when Whitlam was the Prime Minister. Whitlam was the first person to get the federal government to fund the Catholic community to support its exclusively Catholic schools. And this is because the Catholic community uh, could no longer staff its own schools because, um, well, there weren't enough priests and nuns anymore because of of the 60s. In the 60s, people got lost as religious and they weren't willing to commit to the priesthood and, and, and religious orders in anywhere near the same numbers as they had in the past. And so therefore, they needed the government to come in and support their exclusively Catholic schools, which Whitlam did. Whitlam did this um, for cynically political reasons. He wanted to win government in 1972 and the Catholic organisations, after he promised to give them this money, um, supported him to do so. Now, 635A, it's going to be technical, I suppose, for our, for our regular listeners. You'll be used to this. For our new listeners, just bear with me. Um, of the Education Act of 2017, which now reads as follows. The Commonwealth's share for a school is for a government school. The federal government will give 20% of the funding. And for a non-government school, they'll give 80% of the funding. Now, in the Australian federal system, the Commonwealth raises the lion's share of the revenue. There's larger budget and greater flexibility in doing it than the states, where expenditure is largely locked into provisional of essential services. The Act now gives legal force, force the cosy embrace between the powerful class of religious interests that dominate the private school sector in Australia and the level of government that raises the bulk of the revenue. I'll just say that again. The federal government funds government schools to the tune of 20% of, of their entitlement and for non-government schools, 80% of their entitlement. Now, it's just a resource value, isn't it? it How is. much it takes to educate a child in Australia, which is around about twelve to 13,000. Is that correct, Robert? Indeed. Now, given the Commonwealth also bears little or no responsibility for the practical consequences of any funding decision, the consequences always fall upon the states, this has been a recipe for political opportunism and for the uncoordinated funding and planning of schools between both levels of government across public and private sectors. As well, the confusion caused by the irrational way in which Commonwealth and states are distributing the funding has been to the detriments of, indeed, of informed public debate. Now, this is the problem, um, because this confusion can be exploited, of course, by the vested interests. Now, understanding the whole thing about what's going on with Gonski 2.0, I should say, at first glance, it appears to revive key principles of needs-based funding assessed against the agreed standard on what they call a sector-blind basis. Sector-blind, unfortunately, was a term invented by Julia Gillard, who said that no school will lose any money and that money will be given independent of whether you're a school run by Scientologists, by Catholics, or whether you're run as a state school, uh, which is open to all. Now, the concepts set out by the Gonski Review, which is the review of school funding, have garnered widespread support. Following the Abbott government's attempt to cut the Gonski policy principles dead after the first four years, the surprise announcement of their resurrection by his successor, Malcolm Turnbull, could be seen as a welcome gesture. But the devil is in the detail. What, after all, does this section 35A mean? 80 or 20% of what exactly? Given the Turnbull government has accepted the National Schooling Resource Standard, the SRS, these percentages refer to the Commonwealth's share of the total public funding needed for all government and all non-government schools to reach this SRS, set down in the Gonski report. It also amounts to a unilateral decision about what share needs to be contributed by the states. According to the coalition figures, Commonwealth funding is now equivalent to around 17% of SRS for government schools. The equivalent for non-government schools is currently measured at 77%. So how then will this 80-20 split of the Commonwealth's funding towards this SRS affect the state of its total funding to the government and non-government schools? Now, the ongoing panel estimated the final cost of meeting the full SRS would cost about $5 billion annually, and that's in 2009 prices. 
above the total annual cost of both levels of government combined at the time. In current prices, this would be closer, because we've had inflation, to about $6 billion annually. The panel has recommended that the Commonwealth should provide around 30% of the increase, with states providing the remaining 70%. According to the political difficulties of achieving this level from the states, the Gillard government, back in those days, instead committed to the Commonwealth providing around 65% of an increase. Now, given the existing levels of state funding for non-government schools, the Gonski 2.0 package provides 80% of public funding towards this SRS standard, effectively results in these schools operating at a standard well above what it was that they would have been funded in the Gonski 1.0. And should funds from both levels of government to non-government schools add up to more than what they needed to reach the standard, leaves the states then to decide whether to risk the political odium that accompanies with past attempts to cut funding to these schools. Government schools, by contrast, have offered a dismissive aside by the Turnbull government. In the 2017 budget paper, Quality Schools simply states that it will be up to the states whether they wish schools in their states to reach the full standard or not. So all the responsibility on the states, even though the federal government can throw 80% at private schools with no sense of consequence. Now, under current Commonwealth legislation, however, the Catholic system authorities are given autonomy over how they carve up government funding to each school. Now, we've spoken about this in detail. Schools that serve socially and educationally privileged students are more attractive to parents than schools with more students in need of intensive support. So, therefore, Catholic systems are anxious to protect their market share, are free to distribute their public fundings with more of an eye to fortify their most popular schools than providing support where actually it's needed. So the Catholic system has been proven. This has been proven audit report after audit report. They take the government money as one big lump sum and distribute it unevenly. There's more money going to richer Catholic schools and less money going to poor Catholic schools because that's what they're doing to protect their market share. They've been doing this for years, they've been shown to be doing it, and they continue to do it. This current funding arrangement allows this cosy relationship where the Catholic system gets to do exactly what it's like with the money into the future. Now, the term government has actually resulted in what what has been called a tautology. The Quality Schools budget paper explains the Commonwealth's commitment of 80% to public funding to private schools over the next decade reflects the Commonwealth's role as the primary public funder of the private sector. I'll say that again. The Commonwealth's role is the primary public funder of the private sector. Just think about that. And then think about what the dog's position is and whether indeed any public fund should go to the private sector at all. Well, Lindsay Connors, Robert, she's um, and, and also Jane Coe, they're really only saying what has been the case certainly since 1978 uh, when uh, the uh, Schools Commission was virtually taken over by the private school interests. And I think that Lindsay Connors and certainly Joan Kerner, they were around then. But um, this has been the case for the last 50 years. So all Mr Turnbull is doing is putting in legislation what has been the case. The private schools are in the DNA of the, the Commonwealth Government, 80%. And they just might be interested in public schools 20%. But in fact, constitutionally, under Section 51, they shouldn't be in education at all. Very interesting, isn't it? It is indeed. Now, Lindsay Connors and Jane Coe come to some, some, a conclusion. It's not a conclusion that we would support here in the dogs, but they outline a lot of the issues that I think are pertinent in, in doing so. They say a clear approach to all the problems outlined would be for the Commonwealth to accept responsibility for all of the increased funding needed for all of the schools to achieve the appropriate standard. We need a referendum. Say by 2021, well before the current date of 2027, which they predict these things will start to get better. Hmm. And leave the states responsible for maintaining their current level of investment in real terms in public schools. Also, further amendments should be made to the Act to ensure that the capacity for politically motivated deals by the government of the day are strictly limited. After years of special deals, the times come for transparency in the public funding of schools. To start with the Commonwealth, the Act should be amended to require prior accountability and transparency on the part of the systems. 
the Catholic system in particular, for the formula used to distribute their total funding among member schools for the achievement to the agreed standard. They'd have to be dreaming. The Catholic Church has never done it, it's never intended to do it, and it's still not going to do it. Look at what we've just seen with the whole um, question of the sexual abuse of children. Yes, I mean, they've promised to have some transparency and change their ways in, in, in their dealings with children, but then you just look at the case of George Pell, which I won't talk about in detail here on the radio, no. but all I can say is that in hiring Robert Richter as the defence barrister and attempting, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in anything that's not in the papers, attempting to assassinate the character of the witnesses and the witnesses' family along the process. Oh, well, that's the legal system, that's the it's, way it works. Well, yeah. it's the legal system, it's the way it works, but you can actually prove innocence without assassinating the character of the accuser. Mm-hmm. He's called evidence. Um, but they've chosen not to do that in that particular case so the idea of asking the Catholic Church to open up its books for public scrutiny and the way they use taxpayers' money you're right, Jean there'd be robocalls and the question is who's paying for them Hmm. well I say it can only be hoped that the work of of, of of the resources board set up in late 2017 might produce independent advice that can bring some transparency to the work There's a strong case also for making full financial transparency of the private funding of private schools a threshold condition of public funding. But it's hard to imagine either major party has the fortitude to mount it. You see, they're they're being realists. They're they're stating what should happen, but then they're just being realists and saying, well, it's not going to happen, just like what you said, Jean. No, it won't happen until what they solved it in the 19th century and we've went back into the mess of pre-1880. They solved it. They took over the private schools because they were paying for them and they were inefficient, ineffective, and they caused inequalities and they were not available to all children. So you take them over. We now pay for them, take them over and stop the duplication and the division and let's educate our children to the same standard as they can do in Finland, the Scandinavian countries and Germany and other oh, places. In fact, most other countries in the world. And, uh, try China. Yeah. Well, basically, you shouldn't run fund a system unless it's efficient, effective and accountable. And if it's not all three of those things, then you sack the minister until they are. You keep sacking ministers until it is. That's, that's what the Australian public should do. Ministers should be directly accountable. If there's a scandal in a private school, that's the minister's responsibility. If there's a scandal in a public school, that's the minister's responsibility. You can outsource and privatise all these things all you like. It's the minister's responsibility until, until it is. Nothing will change. So Lindsay Connors and Jane Carey conclude that without any referendum of Commonwealth State Agreement, the Turnbull government has virtually brought about change in our constitution, under which the responsibility for schooling rests now with the states. It has used changes in the Education Act in order to secure the place private schooling at the top funding priority for the Commonwealth Government of Australia. That is to say, private schools have the top funding priority for the Commonwealth Government of Australia. The Turnbull government might argue this is not the case, since the Commonwealth is legally able to fund schools under the Constitution, although not obliged to do so. And since states are not obliged to accept Commonwealth funding if they do not agree with it, it's conditions. But the reality is states are not in a financial position to refuse the Commonwealth's money. Yes, so this money is given under Section 96 of the Constitution, which was only supposed to be there for the first 10 years of the, um, of the Federation. But the imbalance started in the taxation system during the Second World War when the states gave up the income tax to the Commonwealth and uh, they got um, payroll tax in return. It was really a very unequal arrangement. Uh, but the, um, the federal governments, both Liberal and Labor, have been undermining the, the federal system of government uh, since, since, I think, even 1901. The federal government has been trying to get more and more centralisation and the High Court has helped them. Uh, it's an interesting, an interesting story legally. But this is what's been going on. But in this case, they're right. Under the Constitution, the states are responsible for education, but the federal government, through Section 96, which has just remained on and on, giving them more and more power, through uh, grants which are given with with, um, strings attached, they give money through Section 96 grants and say, this money has to be used for this particular purpose. And that's how state aid started. 
money was given to the state government to just act as a conduit and pass it on to the Catholic Education Office and others. That's how it works. And there's no accountability for this money at any level of government. As far as the federal government is concerned, they have a Department of Education and they look at an individual school and how it is uh, actually spending its money. In 2008, Ray Nielsen worked out, they went in and they looked at that particular school once every 50 years. That's the level of accountability we now have. Which continues to this day in 2018. Um, In conclusion, I mean, I I think this is a sensible thing to just add to what Carol and um, Connors have been talking about. The whole thing about what Tenable is doing is neither needs-based nor sector-blind. In fact, it's the opposite of sector-blind. It locks in funding from the richest arm of government to fee-charging schools that educate a disproportionate share of children from wealthier families. Schools that can raise money from many other sources, including via uncapped fees and tax-deductible donations. It has found out the most cash-strapped arm of government, the bulk of funding for public schools, that educate a disproportionate share of children from poorer families. Schools that cannot easily raise money from other sources. Far from closing the gap between our most disadvantaged students and their luckier peers, Gonski 2.0 has appropriated pieces of the original Gonski and rearranged them to do exactly the opposite. If Gonski had any any integrity at all and concern for disadvantaged children of this nation, he would resign. Yeah, it's like we're trying to build a class system, or, as Jane quite mentioned or before. Write, or write a dissenting report before it even starts. But I don't think these people have got the intestinal court fortitude. And, of course, Lindsay Connors could have written many dissenting reports in her time, which she hasn't done. But the dogs have dissented all along, and we will continue to do so. Yes, and we'll be back with more dogs after this.
Welcome back to the dogs program. A bit of a valley from spring there, because it's always spring somewhere. It just have, doesn't have to be spring here at the moment. Yeah, it's autumn, but anyway. Um, Vivaldi Springs, just something to lighten the mood before we go and have some good news. Some fascinatingly and wonderfully good news as things are going up in Shepparton. Jean promised you earlier we're going to be talking about the Wilmot Road Primary School in Shepparton because Wilmot Road Primary School is a great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Yes, Wilmot Road Primary School up there in Shep. Now, Shep is an interesting case in point. It's a fascinating town, which we're going to find out more about, because sometimes you need to know about the place a school is in to know about the school itself, and that's certainly true of Wilmot Road. Just to give you the facts and figures, Wilmot Road Primary School is a school of around about, oh, I don't know, 300 kids. There's around about 25 full-time teaching staff. Sorry, about 23 full-time teaching staff, which is actually a lot of staff for that number of kids. So why are there so many teachers in this state primary school, Wilmot Road? Well, because 78% of the kids are from the bottom quartile and 15% are from the middle and bottom quartile. So if you had 78 and 15, you get well over 90% of the kids are from the poorest bit of Australia. 1% of the kids that go to this school are in the top quartile. And this isn't a place like Shepparton. Shepparton's a country town. It's a good country town. In fact, a very large amount of fruit and veggies that you're eating through this week come from around Shepparton. It's, one of the, it's got good soil up there. Um, it's a nice place, and there's some wealthy people. In fact, there's lots of wealthy people up in Shepparton, but none of those wealthy people are going to Wilmot Road Primary School. Well, when I say none, I mean one. <laughs> but the rest are not. I mean... 6% come from the second highest quartile, so that's 7% in total from the, from the richest half of Australia. Kids go to Wilmot Road Primary School. Well, yeah, that's not many. So, what are their results like? Well, for, well the Ixian value. The Ixian value, remember, thousands in the middle, and a really rich school's around about 1,100. The school's Ixian value was 860. It is, oh, it is one of, the, it's one of the poorest schools in Australia. In Australia in terms of the income of the parents who would send their kids there. But it's very rich in diversity. It's amazing. 11% of the kids that go there um, are from Indigenous backgrounds, and 70% of the kids that go there are from a background of language other than English. Now think about that. 70% of the kids in a country town in Victoria come from a language background other than English. How would you like to be a teacher there, Robert? I love it. So much fun. In fact, we're going to find out about it. So, that's an interesting statistic because this is country Victoria. You know, this, this isn't inner city Victoria or the West, 70%. Why? Well, we're about to find out why. But before we find out why these, this interesting school is doing what it's doing, how's it going? Well, against similar schools, it is rocking. It is substantially above or above all other similar schools in Australia, although there aren't many similar schools because there aren't many, so, so, so many poor schools. So let's talk about how they're doing compared to all schools in Australia. Rich schools, poor schools, schools in the middle. Well, they're not doing so good when it comes to reading in fifth grade. Everything else, they're, they're just fine. They're just fine with everything else. And in writing, in fact, they're substantially above in third grade. Their third grade writing is substantially above the median for all schools in Australia. How? <laughs> How? How is this school doing this? Well... $3.2 million has been pumped into the school over the last three years because the need has been identified by the state government. The Labor government in, up, up there in Spring Street has said, this is, this is shocking, we're going to do something. Well, and, they've put, and they've actually put a bit of extra money into it. How much extra money? Well, remember I said the golden, the golden thing is around about $11,000, $12,000 for a primary school kid? They're pumping in $16,000 per kid for kids in the school. They're actually spending the money. They're spending the money that needs to be spent on, on this pocket. It's not just a pocket. It's this, 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 this well of disadvantage, and it's working. So the whole idea of, oh, spending more money on kids doesn't make any difference. It does. This is it the future of Australia. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. These children are our future. Yep. If you put all these kids in the one place, because that's what's happening in Shepparton, they're putting all the kids in one pocket, 
in one little well, all the poor kids in one school, and then all the other schools are fine, they don't have to worry about it so much. Then you give them a bit of extra money in that school, and not only do they they kick butt compared to similar schools, but they actually just kick butt compared to all schools. Put the money where it's needed. This is true needs-based funding. Forget all the whinging Catholic schools saying, oh, we've got poor kids too, it's not fair. These kids don't whinge. The government just notices, gives us the money, and, and they get on with it. Now, there's an interesting article written about this school by Michael McGowan in The Guardian just recently. Um, um, it's just going to follow just, just, just for a little bit um, a, to one particular student, and her name is Nalani. Now, two years ago, Nalani was kicked out of a state school. She was six years old, and she was told that she was no longer welcome. She was kicked out of a state school because there was a series of violent incidents in which Nalani hit, kicked and beat classmates and teachers. And that state school had to make a decision. And Cry for help. And the decision was, you can't go to this school anymore. Cry for help. Now, struggling with a combination of mental illness and drug addiction, her parents... Nalani's parents struggled to process what they were being told. Catherine, her mother, said, It's like we were there, but we weren't there, she said. We were just vacant because we didn't understand really what was where they were coming from. All we heard was that our daughter was getting thrown out of the school. It was, it was just like, wow, she's six years old. That's so unfair. That meeting could have been a life sentence for Nalani the beginning of a cycle of conflict and distrust with the education system, unable or unwilling to address the barely hidden trauma at the heart of her behaviour. Her father said, it sets this precedent of what a school is going to be like. He went on to say she didn't want to go back to that school after that. It completely destroyed any trust she had, for us too, actually. There was a perception that if we got it from one school, we'd get it from wherever we go. Except they didn't. Two years later, Nalani, who's now eight, is, is spoken about in glowing terms by her teachers, by her doctors and by her social workers who poured hundreds of hours of, of resources into helping her and her family back to what they now call the fog. Nalani's new school is Wilmot Road Primary School. It's on the south side of Shepparton, a town of around about 63,000 people. It's two hours north of Melbourne. Statistically among the most disadvantaged schools in Victoria, it is set in a neighbourhood dominated by 1970s era public housing properties inhabited by disadvantaged families and increasingly a booming refugee population. The Guardian spent a week inside Wilmot and its secondary neighbour, Maguire College, talking to teachers, parents and students to get a close look at the challenges facing Australia's unequal public school system. A question emerged. How much does it cost to give a disadvantaged child the tools to benefit from an education? And how do Australian schools have those resources? One of the teachers there said, and they now can say it because Kenneth's gone, says, it can feel like fighting a boxing match with both arms tied behind your back at times. But despite the built-in inequities that we've been talking about with Gonski 2.0, there are victories. Such is the case of Nilani. Now, how far has Nalani come since she was six years old and expelled from a primary school? Well, beneath the coffee table, in her weatherboard home, the presents had been bought and carefully wrapped for two of Nalani's classmates whose birthday party she is due to attend. Catherine, her mother, calls her. She says, Little Miss Social Butterfly. Once upon a time, she didn't even know what a friend was. Nalani is bubbly and precocious. One recent afternoon, she climbed on her older brother's Michael's shoulders in the front yard as Catherine and Dave tried to explain the change in her in those two years and the impact of Wilmot Road has on her life. Catherine says very simply, Wilmot State School saved us. Not just Milani, but our whole family. Without that school, I honestly do not know what would have happened to us. Well, this is a problem in Shepparton and it it's something that happens in Shepparton all too often. The Guardian reporters sat in a staff meeting of the high school maths class next door and all the bass teachers there resigned to the fact that they do not have enough working calculators. A week earlier, the prestigious Trinity Grammar School in Melbourne had recruited a former federal court judge to lead an investigation into the sacking of a deputy headmaster who gave a student a haircut. While up in Shepparton, Mass teachers 
don't have enough calculators. Well, Shepparton is actually a city of contrast. Drive in any direction outside Shepparton, you'll hit the orchards and farms that account for around about one in four of Victoria's agricultural products. But the town has long battled entrenched disadvantaged, highlighted by high youth unemployment, welfare dependency and one of Victoria's worst high school completion rates. Teachers at Wilmot and Maguire, the secondary college next door, told the Guardian it was common for students to enter school several years behind developmentally. Dr Peter Eastler, a respected paediatrician who has practised in the town for 40 years, said Shepparton is a tale of two cities. This is getting more familiar around Australia. A tale of two cities. We have massive growth and development in one part of Shepparton, and then there are pockets of significant disadvantage in other parts, he says, and it's very easy for a man in his Mercedes to drive past the drunk in the gutter without the two ever actually meeting. On the north side of Shepparton, new suburbs make up of McMansions with Toyota Klugers in the driveway sit uncomfortably alongside the public housing properties where children ride razor scooters and blast mingos and two-pack out of their mobile phones. For the past five years, Isla, the former head of paediatrics at the Golden Valley Health, has been at the centre of a program trying to break the cycle of disadvantage in Shepparton going directly into schools such as Wilmot. Through the Naples Schools Program, he runs health clinics for children identified as being at risk in five of Shepparton's primary schools. Since starting the program, he has worked with 360 children between the ages of 6 and 12 who have, he has diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome disorder. I've come across that. It's tragic. Learning, behavioural and speech disorders and a small number of cases, actual addiction. But Eastlaw tells the gun he quickly recognised from an overwhelming number of children he saw, that is one in four, suffered from some some sort of environmental trauma, Mm. a product of drug addiction, domestic violence and poverty, he says, is endemic in some parts of Shepparton. Environmental trauma comes up a lot in Shepparton, and it's not just a result of family violence or poverty. Since the 1990s, the town has been a beacon for migrants seeking work picking fruit in orchards alongside the European backpackers. It's not easy to sit a kid down in the class and say, learn this, when they haven't had breakfast. In a diversity of Shepparton's residents, and Shepparton in many ways takes pride in this, half a dozen people pointed out to the, in, to the Guardian that in, in 2015, when a proposed mosque in Bendigo led to a series of ugly anti-Islamic demonstrations, Shepparton just quietly built theirs. But the influx of migrants meant particular challenges for the school. In 2017, 70% of Wilmot's enrolments came from non-English speaking backgrounds. About 40% of the school's enrolments actually come from one group. They are Hazara. They are Afghan refugees. And Hazara are persecuted and killed on site by the Taliban in Afghanistan. They're a different sort of Muslim, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I can't so, talk yeah. about that. No, it means that the school's administration struggles to build trust with parents who might have little or no exposure to formal education. Mm. Classroom teachers deal with students coming from trauma backgrounds that few of the teachers themselves can currently comprehend. Now, I personally have experience with this working in London mm. with what they called unaccompanied refugee minors. That is, people who, are, who were on their way to England with their parents, but their parents were murdered in front of them, and they arrived in England on their own. And, of course, they were plonked in front of me as a teacher. Now, a lot of our families have a very low education because they've always been pushed back from education, both here in Australia, but also in Afghanistan. Because of the background, people from Afghanistan are not tending to go to complain to find out what's going on. If they think their children are not okay or in trouble at school, they're just going to keep them at home and not tell anyone. So Wilmot decided to do something about it. Now, this is where the state government come in. It used $3.2 million in extra money for the school from the government over three years as part of an equity funding program that sought to turn itself into the school into just more than a school, which is exactly what they've done there. It's exactly what they did down at Dufton, which yeah. we reported on, which, of yeah. course, has been all over the news since we got hold of it. These schools reaching out into the community with extra dollars to do so, 25 teachers... For 300 kids. Only public schools can be community schools, genuine community schools. They belong to the community. All of the community, not just the Catholic community or this community or the Islamic community. They are community in in the geographic sense. doesn't matter what's in the community. The community owns that school. So 
we've come to the end of our dogs program now, which has been lovely to have your company over this time, and it's good to end on an up, because the good things that are happening in Shepparton, with appropriate funding from the government. Do I mind my taxes going to f- help out the kids in Wilmot? No. That's what my taxes are for. Do I mind my taxes hiring an ex-federal court judge to settle a dispute at Trinity Court's camera, depending, centred around whether someone got their hair cut? No, not really. I'm not happy for my taxes to fund that, and I certainly hope they don't. But, yes, well, well we, we know what, what that's all about. You've been listening to The Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. If you want to find out what we've been talking about, you can actually get all these details we've been talking about on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Or, of course, you can just go to the 3CR website, which is 3cr.org.au. Or, in fact, if you have a good state school in your area and you want to give us a call, you can contact us. Um, on our website, www.adogs.info, or indeed give the station a call. We're waiting for your call on 94198377. That's 94198377. Get a message to us and we'll get back to you. We'll find out about great state schools around Victoria and expose the problems with funding state education in Australia today. Why there are problems? <sighs> Why would you not? Why would you just not? I, it, it's, it, I, I've been here doing this for years and years and years, and it still baffles to me with why, why I have to sit here, why, why special interests in Canberra have just hijacked the whole thing over generations, and why we have to fight to fairly fund Australian education. But nevertheless, we have to, and we'll be back here next week to do it. So from here at the Dogs Program, it's bye for now. Says he.